Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Good morning. Well, if you don't believe in miracles, since Monday morning last week I've flown seven flights of 11,000 miles on American Airlines <clears throat> and I'm here and uh, yeah thanks it was frankly it was a little refreshing to be out of the country for two weeks I was in Ireland and uh, Franklin Graham did a event this last weekend in Belfast and uh, God did some great things there but it was a, a, when I left the United States uh, two, three weeks ago, the whole world was watching a 30-second sound bite from a pulpit in Chicago. And every time I turned on the TV or turned on the radio, um, I was hearing that voice, and it wasn't an Easter message. I wasn't as sorry to get away from that for a couple of weeks, and it was a little nice to just sort of cleanse my palate, if you will. And then I came back on Monday, back into the melee and I was reminded upon my arrival that it, March Madness uh, is no longer about basketball. And this is the spring is no longer about baseball. We're in the middle of the presidential primary season. And uh, the focus has shifted gears. A uh, month or so ago, it was Iraq, but things have begun to stabilize a little bit there. So it doesn't seem like that's the big issue. And then we went to this sort of um, whose pastor said what. And, and now we've just landed on the economy. And I think it may be that for the next uh, few days or weeks at least, we're just going to be hearing economy, 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 economy. Have you felt that? And I think two things bring it to bear this week. One is the fact that on Tuesday, you and I are going to be paying the ransom so we don't go to jail for another year. And then this morning's newspaper uh, sent us um, into the hands of Parade Magazine with their annual favorite, What People Earn, annual report. Boy, you're going to want to peel this out of the uh, ads and circulars when you get home today. Let me just give you some highlights. Trouble is Leona Helmsley's dog. Uh, Leona Helmsley died recently, but she left most of her estate to her dog, Trouble. It's an eight-year-old little mutt, and uh, he lives in Sarasota, Florida, and this year made $12 million. Uh, When you get into the body of this article that surrounds the stories of the people and their income streams, I'm just caught with the the headlines that are woven through the article. Let me just read you the headlines. Wages are down. Health costs soar. Paychecks won't stretch. Are you underpaid? The job market contracts and consumers cut back. Feeling up yet? (laughs) Then the picture of Timothy Janus, 31 years old, a competitive eater, that's his profession, in New York, makes $25,000 a year. I'll compete. Well, the, the stories just continue. Mary-Kate Olson, 21 years old, wasn't she a cute little kid? She had a cutback this year. She only made $17 million. I'm taken with the uh, account of Cynthia Hess, who's 55. She's a psychic from Albuquerque. 
and makes $38,000 a year. And then I'll end it with Phil McGraw, though there are hundreds in here. Phil McGraw at 57, a TV host and best-selling author of a diet book at 235 pounds. Her reported income of $90 million because he was discovered by Oprah as a jury consultant in Texas and made famous. You know, it's fascinating when we think about this economy stuff, and I'm not getting political, so um, sort of uh, lighten up. We're moving into the scriptures here. But I'm taken with the fact that seven days a week we're under the barrage of the messaging that is uh, caught in this moment of our cultural sort of journey. And right now, when you lay that over some other statistics that are already troubling, recently George Barner reported from some survey work that his firm had done with Christians around America. Now, these are people that they call on the phone and they get positive answers to two questions in a barrage of questions. One is, are you born again? And they define what that means. And then they take the people who say that they have had a personal experience with Jesus Christ. And they find out if they are involved in a local church. Curiously, about half of those who say they are born again are not involved in a local church. But those who say they are, they drill down on a variety of additional questions to ask sort of the substance of their Christian life experience. And one facet of that questioning has to do with their life as a steward. Are they giving at a biblical level? Of the people who report that they're in fact born again and that they do go to a local church, 60% of those people say that they do not tithe and have no plans to. 40% say they do. But then when they ask further, they discover that um, 31% say they tithe but don't, and 9% really do. When you think about Malachi's statement, when God says, you're robbing me, the whole nation of you, and... And God says that our response would be, how am I robbing you? And he says in the tithes and offerings. When when God sees in my life an unwillingness to be obedient at the basic level, he calls me a thief. And so what Varnas found is that among church-going, born-again people in America today, 60% are thieves, 30% are thieves and liars. 9% are obediently following God's directive to give at the base level And then we have this uh, moment in the economic cycle where things begin to tighten up. Now, you know, when you say the economy, it doesn't have a lot of emotional appeal. To say that there's an uptick in the unemployment and that we've gone from 6.4% to 7.1%, gosh, that's kind of sort of statistics. But when you hear that you're going to have layoffs at your company and they haven't decided who yet, it becomes personal. When you hear that oil is $100 a barrel, that's the economy. When you find out that it's going to cost you 100 bucks to fill up your SUV, that's personal. This economy stuff is hard to get emotional about, but when it becomes personal, boy, that's something else. And as the personal effects of the economic climate around us are swirling, it's unfortunate that the people who are applying for a job at... uh, the core of Washington, D.C., and expect to be um, sort of hired next November through the ballot box. The emergence of fear becomes a great way to manipulate the decisions of people because the offer of solutions that will alleviate the fear seem to be reasonable. 
It was a political climate when Jesus was here 2,000 years ago. But the politics that were going on in first century Israel were not what he came to speak into. He came to speak into the environment of the personal realm. And when he stood on a mountainside, and we're going to look this morning at the transcript of that message, which was an incredible policy speech given by Jesus in his uh, intent to change the system. The system had become corrupted. The religious leaders had seen what Moses had established as the religion of Israel become a means by which they could control and manipulate people. And God had been left out. Jesus ran on a platform of change. But he was not there to be a political savior. He was there to become our personal savior. He wasn't making an appeal to the people in power. He was making an appeal to the people who were in peril. And in that speech that Matthew gratefully recorded for us, in the Gospel of the King, Matthew's Gospel, I want you to go with me to Matthew. We're going to look at the sixth chapter, a portion of that Sermon on the Mount, 109 verses in the English text, and we're going to look at 17 of them. Jesus had a lot to say about a lot of subjects, but if we could boil down... His position as it regards money, the economy, and how it affects us personally, these are the verses that do that. We're going to begin reading in verse 19. If you paid extra for your Bible, the words you're about to hear are in red. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You know, we know that there were hundreds, perhaps thousands of people who were in the audience that day as Jesus was talking about a myriad of subjects. And whenever you're talking about a subject, people tend to sort of break ranks based on where they're coming from. Example, 
if we were to be on Mother's Day or Father's Day and talking about parenting, boy, if you have kids at home, you tune in because you need help. And if you don't have kids at home, you kind of zone out and say, well, it's nice to be here. And you kind of plan your week uh, writing in a bulletin as if you were taking notes on the pastor. <laughs> if, you're, uh, if you're talking about money, the crowd tends to separate into two groups. And I'm going to apply a stereotype for a moment. I hope you won't be offended by that. But stereotypes are useful only because they're most often valid. Let me give you an example. If we talk to pe- about people who are insensitive, unfeeling, tend to think with just their cognitive brain and not their emotive brain, people who are just don't get it and say things without thinking about it, we would be talking about men, of course. Come on, get with me here. Truth be told, there's some validity to the fact that men and women tend to come from two very different poles as it regards how we respond to life. Men very logical, women very relational. When uh, when an issue has just been explored and put on the table, men will look at each other and say, what do you think? Women will look at each other and say, how do you feel? Are there exceptions to that? Certainly. But the exceptions don't do violence to the fact that there are stereotypes that are most often applicable. When Jesus talked about money, he talked about it speaking to the whole crowd, but he addressed the two most dominant positions as it regards money at the personal level. And I want to unpack those two groups this morning because the same representation that was on that hillside that day is here in church this morning. What is our response? What is our relationship to the economic realities of life? Jesus knew how we were wired, and because of that, he spoke to both groups. Here's the first group that he's speaking to. And I believe that this group tends to be, most often, men. It's the group who see money as a way to keep score in life. Do you keep score in life? It's interesting, the scorekeeping doesn't start when you get your first paycheck. The scorekeeping starts when you find out that not everyone can be first, but you plan to be. I have three grandsons who are, um, who, I have five grandchildren, but the three grandsons are the firstborn of the five. And the 10-year-old and then the two seven-year-olds are all in ASO soccer. It's interesting, the seven-year-olds have been this last year in the league where they're just getting started, and I think ASO was designed by women because at the early stages, they don't plan for them to keep score. They just want them to learn to play. Well, someone got, forgot to get word to my grandson, Max, because whenever I come to Max's games and uh, join him on the sideline, he's in that um, seven-year-old league where they're not supposed to keep score. I'll come in and say, how's it going, Max? And he'll say, it's going great. We're winning three to one. Well, who told him to keep score? No one did. That's just the way he's wired. Sin shows up early, doesn't it? I'm afraid he's been watching me. He's been in the car when we've been in one of those on-ramps where there are two lanes that go down to one. And I do my part to contribute to global warming. How do you keep score in life as soon as the paychecks start coming? Money is one way we do it. Money is one of the crucial ingredients in the recipe for identity and value. And for a lot of people, they use the size of their pile to measure their importance in life. And this group often is men, but it's not limited to men. There are women who can join. 
And when that happens, money almost becomes mystical in in, in perspective. Because when Jesus talks about it, he doesn't just use the terminology of money. He, He recognizes that the spiritual mention becomes a competition to God. In fact, this is the passage where he says the competition boils down to between God and mammon. Mammon, the mystical representation of money. Not a God by nature, but a God by worship. Money doesn't have power, but we give it power. And to us who are in group one, Jesus makes this profound statement. Change your strategy regarding treasure. Verse 19 again, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You say, well, I'm safe here. I have no treasure. We've been raised in a society where treasure is something that's... um, in a shipwreck somewhere. It's in a strong box. It's buried in the ground. It's something that you discover and you don't want to report. It's uh, it's it's a big pile of glittery stuff. But when Jesus talks about treasure throughout the New Testament, the terminology of treasure is really just addressing people who find that in economic terms, they have more than they need. Do you have more than you need today? Most Americans at first blush would say, oh, no, in fact, I need more. It's intriguing, however, at the same time, that there are billions of people on planet Earth who will swim great oceans or uh, burrow under fences to get into America because when they look at your life compared to theirs, they say you're rich and they're not. The fact that we consume most of what we have does not mean that we don't have treasure. Treasure is that moment when we recognize that our basic needs have been met and now the money that we have to spend is optional. Treasure is not your rent or your mortgage payment. Treasure is not your utility bills. Treasure is not what it costs to put food on the table. God's not after the cost of living. Jesus is talking in this passage to a group of people who were practicing Jews in that culture. And a practicing Jewish person was a person who understood that God deserved and received the first 10% of what they produced with the work of their hands. For most of those people, they didn't receive a paycheck. They were taking crops from the field. They were taking animals from their herds. They had the work of their hands that was being produced as an output. And God had declared that he deserved the first 10% of what they produced from their labors. And these would be people who had been giving their tithe as obedient, practicing Jews. Jesus is talking to them about what they had left over. The way they approached life was God got his 10% first. And then their needs were met. And then as they had abundance beyond their needs, what would they do with it? Jesus doesn't list the kinds of categories, but he said that the categories of places they put their treasure, moth and rust and thieves were a risk. The moth and rust speaks to the fact that some people take treasure and turn it into products. Things that have tangibility that... um, Boy, it's the chance to get the new car. It's the chance to get that boat that you've been borrowing for vacation. And now you can own so it can sit in the driveway 50 weeks a year. 
the treasure becomes the trappings of success. And Jesus said, as soon as you have those trappings, they are now subject to degradation. Wrath, moth and rust can destroy them. And the deflation of value can occur because as soon as you bring it home, it's not worth what you paid for it. Or you may take treasure and put it in a place where thieves can break in and steal it. The thieves from Washington just get it on April 15th. The thieves from Wall Street get it when they lose money in their funds, but they pay themselves bonuses for doing it. The thieves are all around us. And Jesus said, when you've got it as treasure, you can either put it into products that are going to become less valuable by the week, or you can put it into a stash and have to watch it and hoard it because someone else wants it. Jesus said, let me give you an alternative in terms of your treasure. Instead of storing it down here, he said, my father will make the vaults in the bank of heaven available for you instead. When you have more than you need, what will you do with it? Jesus said, why don't you put it in heaven where it can be safe and grow? And someday when you catch up with it, I'll hand it back to you when you come to my place. Boy, the strategy of trying to store treasure here is superseded in Jesus' address by the option of storing it in a place where it can be safe. What do you do with your treasure? Well, that first group got Jesus' input, and I'm sure that there were wives who were nudging their husbands on that hillside that day. And Jesus, at that moment, stepped up and said, you know, there's another group. There's another mindset that I need to speak to. And that's this second group for whom money is not the measure of success. Money is the way they find security in life. It's one of the crucial ingredients in determining whether they can be confident about tomorrow. Because their financial situation is the basis upon which they decide whether or not they can sleep well at night. These are people who are not out for success. They're out for security. And for them, it's all about knowing that food and clothing and shelter, it's, it's the basics of life that they're worried about for tomorrow. My wife is far more prone to think in terms of security for the family than she is about growing or acquiring We have very different perspectives. I think differently than Sherry does. And I find that the way I think is of great value once or twice a year. (laughs) But there's a continuing potential tension between these two incredibly different groups of people. And Jesus needs to speak to both of them about their issues. Because if you're looking to... Measure life as success based on your treasure and how much of it you have. He said, if you follow the world's lead, you're going to lose. And then he turned to the people who were looking at money as the basis upon which they could sleep well and not worry. He said, if that's the approach you're going to take, you'll lose as well. Listen to what he said, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Drop down to verse 31. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Where's your hope for tomorrow? 
Jesus said, you can find it in your God or you can find it in your gold. Where do you look for it? You know, this is an emotional risk for people in group two. It's the risk of wondering whether or not you're going to have what you need to stay alive tomorrow. And they attempt to use money to satisfy that fear, but it's unable to do so. God intended that we have a hole in our hearts that cannot be filled by anything but him. And here's the breakthrough for those who have a faith-based relationship with Jesus Christ. It's that confidence is found in the object of our worship. If we worship at the altar of mammon and try to find hope and confidence there, the best we'll get is a counterfeit. But if we find ourselves worshiping at the altar of the Lord Jesus, hope and confidence is dispensed and refreshed daily. You stepped into one of those convenience stores to pay for your gas. You gotten in line behind the people who are making their weekly purchase of lottery tickets. And boy, there's almost a, uh, a sense of anticipation as they lay precious dollars that they've worked so hard for down on the counter and get worthless colored cardboard back. And they say, oh, I hope these are the numbers that are going to win. And I look through my cognitive brain and say, well, the current odds of one of those cards producing a win is one in 11 million. And the word they use to describe that is hope. Don't use that meaning of that word when Jesus says hope. Because when God talks about hope, he means confidence. That is the statement that because you parked your car in the lot here at the church, locked it and know that they've got people watching while you're here, that if I asked you right now, where is your car? And if you said to me, I hope it's where I left it. May I tell you that there's about a one in 11 million chance that it's not there. That your hope is founded in a solid and dependable certainty that what God has promised, he will deliver. Can you trust him? Well, what in the world do we do with all of this? We came in this morning and, uh, well, let me just ask, how many of you this morning are not either men or women? See, uh, our tendency is to be within the stereotypes. Now, you may identify more with the other group than the stereotype. That's okay. We're all wired, as God sees us, to either see money as a basis for success or a basis for survival. We either see it as treasure or we see it as a safety net. And no matter what our perspective, God comes in with a counterintuitive but powerfully accurate advice about how to lift ourselves above the emotional morass that most people around us are living in today. Jesus came and he never spoke down on treasure. What he did was to say that God has a heart for treasure and he wants you to trust him with it. When you move treasure to heaven, God renames it. He calls it rewards. And here's the question. How do you accumulate treasure in heaven, rewards in heaven, in the same address at the Sermon on the Mount? He had some great insight about it. Look up to chapter 5 in verse 11. Here's one way to grow your treasure. Blessed are you when people insult you. Do you like that? When people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad 
Because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you know that every time you experience grief for what you believe, God makes a deposit to your treasure in heaven? Here's another statement by Jesus, Matthew chapter 6, verse 4. When you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do you have those moments where you drive by the guy who's holding the cardboard sign at the off-ramp that says, Vietnam vet will will work for food, God bless you. You, you. you know how those are? Are you as insensitive and uncaring as I am? Any men here? I mean, we, we, we tend to tend to say, oh, you know what, he probably works down here every day, probably has a bundle of money, probably, you know, just gets unbelievable money from people going by. Do you know what Jesus said? He said, someday when you get to heaven, you're going to find out that when I was thirsty, you didn't give me any water. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. And you're going to say, well, why? we would have fed you. And he said, when you went by somebody and you didn't know who it was and you turned away and failed to meet the need, that was me. Boy, that passage has changed my life in the last few years. I recognize that I may be going by Jesus frequently, and I don't want to get to heaven to find out that he had a corner at the off-ramp with a cardboard sign, and I missed him. Isn't it fascinating? The bank of heaven doesn't have a drive-up teller, but they've got drive-by needy people who take deposits for God. And when you leave your deposit with them, your account in heaven registers for your balance. Here's another way Jesus said you can run your treasures up in heaven. Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. When you pray, get into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who's unseen. And your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Down in verse 17, when you fast, put oil on your head. Wash your face so it will not be obvious to men that you're fasting. Only to your Father who's unseen. And your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. He said, if you want treasure in heaven, be more spiritual when you're alone than you are when you're at church. You ever had the experience that we used to have, boy, in our early married life? I discovered that it was almost a weekly routine. We'd be having sort of the nuclear meltdown in the car on the way into the church lot. As soon as we parked and got our Bibles in our hands, we became holy. We'd walk in and bless you, bless you, God bless you, God but praying for you. Oh, and this nice, wonderful grace of Jesus. And we'd just go through our routine, get back on the car and rearm. <laughs> and we become most spiritual for an hour and a half on Sunday. And then we sort of let it go. God said, you want to really impress me? Be more spiritual when you're alone than you are when you're with your Christian friends. And when I see that, your balance goes up. Here's the breakthrough. God's into treasure. He just wants you to put it in a place where it's safe. Boy, if you're one of those group two people who's looking for security, it comes down to this. God wants your life to be devoid of worry. How do you do that? Listen, you can either worry about having what you'll need for tomorrow, or you can let God worry about what you'll need for tomorrow by trusting him today. Because faith and fear cannot coexist in the same person at the same time. If your hope is in God, your faith will transform your psyche 
and worry will be reduced to nothing. Is that a good thing? The Apostle Peter, you don't need to turn there, but 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, this is what he said. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. I believe, men and women, that we're living at a moment when people who are already a little bit skitterish are being asked to become more fearful by the moment every time they listen to another candidate begging for their vote. It seems like they're being told that they ought to be afraid, and unless they get elected, the fears will become realized. What would it mean if in the midst of that worrying population of our contemporary culture, if there were people who were bright outlets of hope, who had made a very willful decision to trust the God of heaven instead of trusting Bernanke and the Fed. What would happen if our confidence was in God and not in whoever will join the ranks of the politicos in the White House in November? What if your hope were so dramatically exceptional that the people in your world saw it and asked about why you're not worried like they are, God would get the glory he deserves. And frankly, you and I will live better on the way. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess to you this morning that we live among a people who don't find their hope and confidence in you. In fact, when we hear the statistics even about people who are born again and go to church, that the majority of them are still living under the fear that if they were just obedient to you with the tithe, that they'd be in trouble. So they withhold. And they trust themselves instead of trusting you. God, I believe that you've called us to be so extraordinary in the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we live that the world around us would see us as bright lights of hope in an increasingly darkening age. What a wonderful thing if these agape boxes were so loaded that they'd have to empty them twice on Sunday because our obedience would fill them to overflowing. What a remarkable thing to live with the confidence that our treasure accounts in heaven are overflowing because the God whom we worship and serve can be trusted. God, I pray that you'll make us bright lights representing our living Savior in a world of desperate need. It's in his powerful name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.